0: chapter 37 verse 1 when king Hezekiah heard it that's the report so they reported back to him he rent his clothes so he did the same as they did because it was an evil report or a report of evil that happened to them and it was a great trial for the king because he was responsible for the people's protection it was a test of his loyalty to God he could capitulate to the Assyrians as his father Ahaz had done, then there would be protection. It's true that people would be dislodged from their homeland, but they would not be killed. So basically, when you look at it, King Ahaz failed the test of loyalty. And Hezekiah passes the test of loyalty. And when you look at the two tests, they're basically the same test. Are you loyal to your covenant Lord? In Hezekiah's case, yes. Under duress, of course. In Ahaz's case, no. And then we see the results in each case. Historically, those two events were separated by a whole generation. About 40 years. This happens 40 years later. But in Isaiah's seven-part structure, they are a contemporary event. They are synchronous ideas. Does that make sense? In an end time scenario, when this whole thing fulfills itself a second time, we will have an Assyrian siege in the end time. We'll have an Assyrian siege of the promised land and of the people of Zion or Jerusalem, where God will intervene, as he did in this case, as we'll read, because of the loyalty of the king and the loyalty of the people. We will also have a case of a rebellious or disloyal descendant of David, who will capitulate to the Assyrians with disastrous results. And we'll have those two individuals living at the same time, not 40 years apart. There are royal families in the world today that trace the lineage back to King David. Some very prominent ones, in fact. And when that world threat repeats itself, where the Assyrians come again, using Assyria as a codename for a modern superpower, as we use Babylon as a codename for a modern spiritual entity. Isaiah defines Babylon as the world and its wicked inhabitants as we saw in chapter 13. And he defines Zion as an elect group of the people of God, a repentant people of God. Those are codenames. Assyria is a codename in that case and so is Egypt a codename for another great superpower of our day that's in decline, that has vast forces of chariots and horsemen to which the smaller nations will look as protection against an Assyrian invasion and Assyrian conquest of the world. So when that situation starts repeating itself in an end-time scenario, there will be an Ahaz who will be disloyal to the Lord and a people who will be disloyal to their king. And there will be Hezekiah, using those names as code names too, who will be loyal and a people loyal to their king. Chapter 37, when King Hezekiah read it, he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and entered the house of the Lord. So he goes and reports back to his Lord as the king's servants had reported back to their Lord. And he sent Eliakim, overseer of the palace, Shebna the secretary and the elders of the priests in sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos. Because Isaiah was the Lord's prophet and his messenger. He was following proper protocol. Yes, he did pour out his heart and pray to God directly. And that was proper. But he also acquiesce to the prophet's authority with God. He's doing everything the proper way here. When King Hezekiah's servants came to Isaiah, they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah. They're representing the king, they're messengers from the king, and so they say, Thus says Hezekiah. This is a woeful day, meaning a cursed day, or a time of cursing. The curses of the covenant are coming upon us because of Transgression. It's like whenever we read woe this or woe that, it is a formal pronunciation of a covenant curse. So this is a cursed situation. The unfortunate thing is that it was not Hezekiah's fault. It was because of the transgressions of a previous generation. The iniquities of the fathers on the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation. It is not the guilt that's passed on, but the effects of sin or transgression that are passed on from one generation to the next. In this case... It's a very dramatic example of that. This is a woeful day, a day of reproof and disgrace. Children have reached the point of birth, but there is no strength to deliver them. They speak so beautifully in metaphor, in this imagery that they use from life around them. We know in our Western culture, have drifted so far from that. There were various points in Israel's history, including this one, when Israel was in travail. She's like a woman in travail. It happened during the time of the Egyptian bondage. Israel is described as a woman in travail. And the Jews call it the birth pangs of the Messiah. And they regard Hezekiah as a Messiah. The rabbis say, we don't need another Messiah. We had him in the days of King Hezekiah. And they're just speaking tongue-in-cheek. They still hope for a Messiah. But Hezekiah was such a person that they would like to have again. The Jews called the birth pangs of the Messiah when the whole nation goes into travail because of some calamity or other. And then, usually, if the people are loyal to the Lord, the Lord sends a deliverer, as he did in Moses' case. And there was an exodus out of Egypt, out of bondage, and they were delivered out of Egypt, and that was the birth of the nation of Israel. So the deliverer was born, and when the deliverer is born, He delivers the people. And you have the same thing in chapter 66 of the book of Isaiah, verses 7 and 8. It says, Before she's in labor, she gives birth. Before her ordeal overtakes her, she delivers a son. Now notice the sequence. Because in the next verse, it talks about a nation being born. Who has heard the like or has seen such things? Can the earth labor but a day and a nation be born at once? For as soon as she was in labor, Zion gave birth to her children. So first the son is born and then the nation is born. Just like out of Egypt. First the deliverer is born and then the people are delivered by the deliverer. Through his ministry, through his stewardship, his job is to deliver the people as Moses delivered them. And we saw that in King David's case also. At the time when Israel chose a king, the whole nation was in travail. The Philistines were about to wipe Israel out and the Lord gave them a deliverer, the king of Israel. First Saul, and then David. And you often wonder, why, why was Saul? Why, did, why didn't the Lord choose David right off the bat? David was the one who delivered Israel from the Philistines. In fact, David reversed the entire situation where Israel was about to be wiped out, Israel blossomed at that time, and Israel's golden age commenced, and Israel became the world power of the time. King David and King Solomon, his son, were emperors of the ancient Eastern world. Now, why Saul? Because Saul and David were contemporaries, you remember? And Saul was trying to kill David. And what do we have here in Isaiah? In this structure, which superimposes the book of Isaiah upon the end time, we have two contemporaries a rebellious king. And the loyal king. And King Saul and King David, who were contemporaries, are also types of that scenario, of an end-time scenario. So we had to have a Saul as a historical type, if nothing else, of a king who was disloyal to the Lord. And so this is the third time in the history of the Lord's people where we have the whole nation in travail. They're about to be wiped out by the Assyrians as they were by the Egyptians and by the Philistines earlier. And here we have a deliverer, King Hezekiah himself. And it is through his faithfulness, as we'll see here, that the Lord delivers the people. Verse 4, It may be that the Lord your God has heard the words of Rabshakeh, whom his Lord the king of Assyria has sent to scorn the living God, and will rebuke him for the things the Lord your God has heard or are you to offer a prayer on behalf of the remnant that is left? Now, Hezekiah has a perfect understanding of how things work. How one man's intercession for others, if that man is high on the spiritual ladder, if he is a savior-type person, and as all rungs high on the spiritual ladder are those of saviors of one kind or another, we'll see that Hezekiah himself is a savior, but Isaiah functions on a higher level than he does spiritually and has more power with God. He's a greater intercessor than Hezekiah is. Verse 6, And Isaiah said to them, Tell your Lord, that is, tell King Hezekiah, the messengers from the king have come to Isaiah and given them that message, and now he sends them back to the king. Thus says the Lord, or thus says Jehovah, Be not afraid because of the words with which you have heard the king of Assyria's subordinates ridicule me. It's very similar to what Isaiah said to King Ahaz a generation earlier when they were threatened with the Assyrian invasion from the north, he said, don't be afraid. The covenant is intact if you'll be loyal. And the protection clause of that covenant will see to it that the Lord will protect you. Verse 7, see, I will give him a notion to return home upon hearing a rumor and I will cause him to fall by a sword in his own land. So there will be in-house intrigues and conspiracy that will cause him to fall. And he'll get spooked somehow and, and act in a confused way that will lead to that. And the Lord can do that. The Lord can enlighten people and he can also take away their enlightenment. Verse 8, and When the Rebbe heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found him fighting against Libna. Now Sennacherib received a report that Tirhaka, king of Cush, had set out to fight against him. Cush was Upper Egypt and was allied with Egypt. As Egypt is a great superpower of today, it's not Egypt in the ancient age. East at all. The names are only code names. It's the role that Isaiah assigns to the powers that determines who they are. It would be like another country adjoining that superpower that resembled it in some ways, an ally. Isaiah prophesies against them as two allied entities, Now Sennacherib received a report that Tirhaka, king of Cush, had set out to fight against him. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah telling them, Speak thus to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now this is kind of a repeat of the same situation. It's like another threat, another demand for surrender. And it's kind of a parallelism. It's like a double witness of what happened just now, what we've just been talking about. Let not your God, in whom you trust, delude you into thinking that Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. You yourself have heard what the kings of Assyria have done, annexing all lands. Shall you then escape? Remember the Germans during World War II, how arrogant they were? And as they conquered nation after nation, they seemed to have a power given to them. They were so confident they could do all of this. And at that time, the Assyrians did too. But remember, as we discussed before, that the Assyrians' rise to power as a world power was in direct proportion to Israel's decline into apostasy. There was a direct relationship like that. And that goes back to the Sinai covenant in Deuteronomy 28, where Israel is promised as a covenant blessing that she will be the head of the nations if she keeps the terms of the covenant. And if she does not she would become the tail and other nations would become the head. And now that has happened in this case. Verse 12, Did the gods of the nations my fathers destroyed deliver them? Did they deliver Gozan and Haran, Rezeph, and the Edenites and Tel Asar? Where are the kings of Hamat and Arpad and the kings of the cities of Sephravaim, Hena and Eva? And Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and unrolled it before the Lord. So we have basically a repeat of what we saw before, a parallelism or a double witness. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord of hosts, or Jehovah of hosts, God of Israel, who sittest enthroned between the cherubim. And that, of course, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized that, which stood in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, where Hezekiah prayed. I'm not sure he went into the Holy of Holies, but he was praying in the temple. And he was referring, of course, to the heavenly throne of God. Thou alone art God over all the kingdoms of the earth. It is thou who madest the heavens and the earth. Although he's living in a culture that accepts a plurality of gods, he does not. He has firmly in his mind that this God is unique. This is the God over all things. The others are no gods, really. O Lord, give ear and hear. O Lord, open thine eyes and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. The living God, because the others are dead gods. O Lord, the kings of Assyria have indeed destroyed all peoples and their lands. First time in the history of the ancient world where somebody did that. Committing their gods to the fire, for they were no gods, but mere works of men's hands of wood and of stone, and so they could destroy them. It's interesting that Isaiah uses wood and stone. He has common metals and materials, semi-precious and precious, to distinguish three categories of people. And so they could destroy them, because they were no gods. But now, O Lord our God, deliver us out of His hand, that all kingdoms on earth may know that Thou alone art Lord. Just like you did in Egypt or just like you did in the days of King David. All kingdoms on the earth recognized at that time that the God of Israel was different, that he was unique, that he had greater power than their gods. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, even while King Hezekiah was praying, Isaiah got word from the Lord, or well, the Lord sent word to his people through his prophet Isaiah, in response to Hezekiah's prayer. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is what the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion holds you in contempt. She laughs you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem shakes her head at you. Just as a woman jilts an unwanted suitor, this guy is trying to date her or trying to go out with her and she just shrugs him off. And that's what Israel is doing here. God's people who are symbolized by the virgin daughter of Zion or the daughter of Jerusalem. But those names, Zion and Jerusalem, are used in a special sense by Isaiah. He's the God of Israel, right? In verse 21. But he starts talking about Zion and Jerusalem in verse 22. So what's the difference? The difference is that in Isaiah's Scenario In Isaiah's theology, there is a spiritual ladder. And the category of Zion or Jerusalem is one category that's higher than that of Jacob or Israel. So this verse is saying an awful lot. It's saying that these people are loyal to me. As such, they reject the king of Assyria's overtures. They're not in the mood to capitulate to him at all. They're going to jilt him, shrug him off laugh him to scorn even, shake their head at him. They're going to reject him and accept me, the Lord, for their husband or for their spouse. In the face of that horrendous pressure that the people are under, it implies that the people have passed the test. The Assyrians have a vast army surrounding the city, or at the city's gates. And in the book there are two armies there. The king of Assyria has one and his general has another. And militarily, the Judeans are no match for the Assyrians. The Assyrians have conquered all the nations of the world or are in the process of doing so. And yet, they don't capitulate to him. They trust in the Lord their God and they're loyal to their king. So they have passed the test of loyalty, covenant loyalty to their God in so doing. They've been valiant in so doing. And so he calls them by these exalted names, Zion or Jerusalem as against Israel or Judea or Jacob. Verse 23, Whom have you mocked and ridiculed? That is, the king of Assyria has mocked and ridiculed. And that's what the evil ones do, don't they? They always mock and ridicule and scorn. That's the mode they operate in. They mock and ridicule and scorn that which is good. In this case, he's mocked and ridiculed the God of Israel himself because he keeps saying, Don't trust in that... Jehovah of yours, he's not going to help you. None of the other gods helped them, so why should he? How could he? Against whom have you raised your voice, lifting your eyes to high heaven against the Holy One of Israel? The Holy One of Israel or the Sanctified One of Israel. And we've discussed that the Holy One is a title of God in the book of Isaiah, where the attribute of holiness, God's holiness, is paradigmatic or it serves an exemplary purpose for God's people. He's holy and they should also be holy. They should become holy. He's valiant. He's called the valiant one of Israel. And so should they. These are attributes of God that they should emulate. As they do so, they ascend the spiritual ladder. Verse 24, By your servants you have blasphemed the Lord. Well, by Rabshakeh for one you thought, on account of my vast tree, I have conquered the highest mountains, the farthest reaches of Lebanon. Of course, mountains is a metaphor for nations in the book of Isaiah. So he's conquered the elite or the loftiest nations with all of his armies of chariots and horsemen. The farthest reaches of Lebanon. Lebanon, throughout the Old Testament, is a figure for Israel, elite Israel. And in fact, he took away the ten tribes captive, or his forefathers did, and he now has conquered Judea as well, virtually all of Judea. I think there were 42 cities mentioned that in the Assyrian annals that they conquered. That they conquered in Judea. My teacher in Toronto, Professor Roland K. Harrison, I remember him um, talking about the two bears, the two she-bears that killed, I think it was 42 children. They tore them to pieces because they were chiding Elisha the prophet's saying, go up, Baldy, go up, Baldy. Go up means ascend, or to progress spiritually. It also means to go up to Jerusalem, or it's sometimes what prophets said to a king, go up to battle. And so they were mocking Elisha. He called them sons of Belial, which is an interesting term because Belial is a construct of two Hebrew words. Beli means not or without, and Ya'al, which means to ascend, So they were unable to ascend or progress. Ascend means progress in the Old Testament, in Isaiah too. And so they were unable to ascend, that is, unable to go up spiritually. They were condemned to a state of non-progression, or under condemnation, in other words, they were damned. Two she-bears came and tore those children to pieces. And my professor in Toronto had said that these um, two she-bears were types of Assyria and Babylon that would come and... Destroy the cities of the people of Israel. And in this case, the Assyrians certainly did that. He's boasting here in verse 24 I have felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I have reached its loftiest summit, its finest forests. I have dug wells and drunk of foreign waters. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all Egypt's rivers. Of course, he's speaking in metaphor. The mountains are nations, Lebanon is Israel, cedars are people, as in chapter 10 he's called the axe, in chapter 14 he hews down people like trees. The loftiest summit, of course, is Jerusalem, which was an exalted city, forests are cities in Isaiah, Isaiah establishes all of these ideas by parallelisms, by synonymous parallelisms, and we've seen quite a few of those already. So he's now boasting that he's actually a conqueror of Egypt as well. Rivers represent rivers of people, and he's already boasting of his conquest of Egypt. And in a military confrontation in Isaiah, yes, that's true. The Assyrians do, in fact, conquer Egypt. And that serves a typological purpose for an end-time scenario, that in an end-time scenario, the militaristic world power from the north, a modern version of Assyria, will, in fact, conquer and destroy the other great superpower, the one that people used to rely upon against the Assyrians. Verse 26. This puts things in perspective. Have you not heard how I ordained this thing long ago? How in days of old I planned it? Now I have brought it to pass. Of course, the modern reenactment of this scenario was planned from of old. Ancient Assyria is a type One of the keys to the book of Isaiah is that all things that he predicts have been and shall be. Isaiah prophesies new versions of old events. A new exodus, a new wandering in the wilderness, and in this case, a new Assyrian invasion, and world conquest. Whatever set a precedent anciently in Israel's history became a type that Isaiah uses for the future, a type of something that will repeat itself. And so in that sense, it kind of gives more meaning to this verse, that what happened anciently is a type for the latter days. Now I have brought it to pass. You were destined to demolish fortified cities, turning them into heaps of rubble. That was his job, pretty gruesome job to be commissioned by the Lord or to be destined by Him to cause such utter destruction. Isaiah therefore characterizes him as a power of chaos. And in fact, it says here in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6 Hail the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. He's a staff, my wrath in their hand. I will commission him against the godless nation, appoint him over the people deserving of my vengeance, to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil, to tread underfoot like mud in the streets. He calls him an axe in verse 15 of chapter 10 that hews down the wicked, and a saw, and a rod, and a staff. And his purpose is to annihilate and to exterminate entire nations in verse 7. He does all of those things. And it was ordained of God. Why? Well, at a certain point, the Babylon world or the Babylon level of existence comes to an end. And the earth itself ascends and assumes a paradisical glory. How was the previous world then to be done away? It's done away when the people of the world ripen in iniquity... And those who fail the test of loyalty are wiped out, and those who pass the test of loyalty are delivered and live on into that millennial time of peace. And somebody has to do that horrible job of destroying. The king of Assyria does, because they chose him, basically. They rejected God and chose him instead. And he actually becomes a, a false god, as we saw, the god of this world in chapter 14, in direct opposition to the god of Israel. But he's not a true God, he's not a God who creates and gives life, he's a false God who destroys life, wipes out entire nations, wipes out all the wicked inhabitants of the world, or nearly all of them. Many are also destroyed by other calamities, but he's the main one that does that. You were destined to demolish fortified cities, turning them into heaps of rubble, while their timorous inhabitants shrank away in confusion, becoming as wild grass, transiently green, or like weeds on a roof that scorched before they grow up. So what kind of people is he destroying? Weeds, wild grass, not fruitful plants, not vegetables or herbs or fruit trees. He's destroying that kind of people, people who are symbolized here by weeds and wild grass that never really mature. Remember in chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard there, people are like biwushim, they're like fruit that rots before it ripens. They never come to maturity, they wither before they ever come to anything and then they are destroyed in the vineyard. The vineyard is invaded by the Assyrians. So that's another way of saying it. Verse 28, But I know where you dwell, and your comings and goings, and how stirred up you are against me. Remember, all of these terms and these ideas and this imagery all has linking places throughout the book of Isaiah. The cross-reference there, chapter 5, verse 30, for example, talks about the sea being stirred up. And sea and river are two names of an ancient or recent power of chaos that Isaiah applies to the king of Assyria. It's a linking word. It's a linking verb. He stirred up against God's people and against their God, just like the sea is stirred up, the sea in commotion or the river in flood that we've seen characterizes the king of Assyria. Verse 29: And because of your snortings and bellowings against me, so he likens him to a horse or a bull which have mounted up to my ears. Enough of that. Like Hitler and his famous or infamous speeches, he was ranting and raving, and every dictator does that, inspired by Satan. Satan gives him the words to speak and empowers him, or the Lord allows him to be empowered in that way when the condition of the world is one of wickedness. So he allows the wicked to rule and to gain power as a way of chastising his people and causing them to repent. And so he's doing the same thing. He's full of propaganda and arrogance and spouting off against God. Because of your snortings and bellowings against me, which have mounted up to my ears, I will put my ring in your nose and my bit in your mouth and turn you back by the way you came. But to you, that is now speaking to God's people, as represented by their king, to you this shall be a sign... It's interesting that in chapter 7, Isaiah offered King Ahaz a sign from God, and he rejected it. So we have a parallel situation here an Assyrian threat, a loyal people, and a sign that everything's going to be okay. This year, eat what grows wild, and the following year, what springs up of itself. But in the third year, sow and harvest, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. So there's going to be a time of scarcity. There's going to be a time of upheaval when things won't be normal because of the Assyrian threat. And that threat happens because of the transgressions of the previous generation. So it puts the present generation into an awkward situation or an uncomfortable situation. Is that good or bad? Isn't that unfair? We've been good. We've kept covenant. Why should we have to put up with all of that from our forefathers? But whatever situation presents itself can be turned to good. These people are actually reversing the curse. And that's a wonderful thing that you can do. These people have a higher calling or are able to respond to a higher calling. They're able to turn a cursed situation into one of blessing again, and that's not easy. It's much easier to turn a blessed situation into a cursed one. It takes extreme loyalty and valor to be loyal to the Lord in a time of great pressure and crisis. But in so doing, you can turn it around, just like Abraham turned it around, from the iniquities of the fathers on the heads of the children to the blessings of the fathers on the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation. Abraham's father was an idolater. He had inherited covenant curses, the famine. He turned it around by his life, and then it became the blessings on the heads of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, to the third and fourth generation. It doesn't really matter what you're born into. It doesn't matter what happens to you. It's anybody's fault. You don't look at life that way. You say, well, what can I do under the present circumstances? What's God's will? How can I express my loyalty toward God? And he will turn a bad situation to a good one eventually. Also, this fulfills what we saw earlier in chapter 7, where the son Emmanuel would be eating cream and honey. And who is this Emmanuel? if not Hezekiah himself. Historically, that is. Emmanuel is also a code name. Chapter 7, verse 14 says, Therefore will my Lord of himself give you a sign. That's the sign that is given, that Ahaz rejected. The young woman with child will give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. Cream and honey will he eat by the time he has learned to reject what is evil and choose what is good. And then in verses 21 and 22 of the same chapter, chapter 7, it says, in that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and a pair of sheep, and because of their plentiful milk, men will eat the cream. All who remain in the land will feed on cream and honey. Well, cream and honey was the fare of nomads in times of emergency when the people had to go back and dwell in their tents for a time and revert to the nomadic lifestyle of their ancestors. It's enough to live on, but it's not luxury. If you didn't have enough to live on, it would be a covenant curse. It would mean that you're guilty. These people are righteous. So they live adequately. They have sufficient for their needs. They have adequate supplies to eat and to drink. But it's a time of emergency. The whole land is going to revert to wilderness because the context here is that the Assyrians are going to come in. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and your father's house a day unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judea, the day of the king of Assyria, verse 17 of chapter 7. So we have that situation now being fulfilled, as I said earlier, in chapters 36 and 37 and 38. So this is the time of emergency, when things will not be following the norm, when the Assyrians are invading the land, and people will have to rely upon their food storage, and upon things that grow wild, and upon a young cow and a pair of sheep, those animals that we can keep alive during that time. They will provide a little bit here, a little bit there, enough to eat. And how long will this time last? Three years. And that ties in with chapter 20, also, where Isaiah prophesies for three years against Egypt and Cush. And it ties in with Babylon's three-year release of time in which to repent. And both of those things imply three years of warning and three years of fulfillment. In the book of Revelation, it's three and a half years. So also in the book of Daniel, but in Isaiah's scenario, it's three years Probably three of the three and a half years. It's basically the same scenario. Isaiah confines it more to three years rather than three and a half. In the third year, sow and harvest, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Things are going to straighten out again by the third year. The danger will be gone and it will be again a permanent situation. There will be fruit. Fruit is a wonderful word. It's a linking word to many parts of Isaiah such as to chapter 11, verse 1, for example, where the tree that no longer bore fruit. From it springs forth a shoot and then there's a graft and it bears fruit. It means a lot of things. It refers to the mission of the servant and that there'll be fruit again that day as well as the idea that things will be okay with the people of Israel. It also implies that the people are righteous, that they're bearing fruit. The remnant of the house of Judah that survives, verse 31, shall once more take root below and bear fruit above. Remember, on the other hand, the Babylonians, the inhabitants of Babylon, they're cut off root and branch. They have nobody. For example, in chapter 14, verse 22, I will cut off Babylon's name and remnant, its offspring and descendants. In other places where it talks about them being cut off and perishing, they don't bear fruit. Verse 32, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and from Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. That takes us back again to chapter 7 and other places, chapter 10, chapter 28, all of them that talk about a remnant of the Lord's people. It's a linking word. The remnant is identified with Zion or Jerusalem again. In fact, they're not synonymous entities necessarily. They are as a spiritual category. Zion and Jerusalem is a spiritual category in the book of Isaiah of people who repent, who pass the test of loyalty, as in this case, but also their places, Zion is both a people and a place. So is Jerusalem. And they're not the same place. They are not synonymous. When you take the word Jerusalem all the way through the book of Isaiah and and the same with the word Zion, you'll see that there are differences between the two. Also in Mount Zion there was protection, as in the cross-reference there, chapters 4, verses 2 through 3, the Lord's cloud of glory rests upon the people of Mount Zion and protects them there during the time of the destruction by the Assyrians, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. Zeal is a, is a metaphor describing the Lord's servant. He's the one who accomplishes this. This is Moses' accomplished deliverance. King David accomplished deliverance. Hezekiah does through his intercession with the Lord, through his righteousness. And so will the servant in that latter-day time period. Verse 33. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not enter this city or shoot an arrow here, he shall not advance against it with armor, nor erect siege works against it. By the way he came, he shall return. He shall not enter this city, says the Lord. I will protect this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. That's in direct disagreement with what Rab Shakeh had said. He said, your God is not able to save you. And here the Lord says, yes, I will save this city, this people. But it's interesting why he does so. I will protect... The protection comes with covenant keeping, always. There's no protection without covenant keeping. It's a clause in the Lord's covenant. There's a protection clause. And he gives the reason why. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Meaning that both are keeping the terms of the covenant. The Lord does his part when his servant does his part. In this case, it's King Hezekiah. In an end time scenario, it's a latter day David. In King David's own time, it was David himself. And Moses' time, it was Moses. In the Davidic covenant, that's the case. The king stands in for the people, and the king intercedes with God on behalf of the people, as Hezekiah does, to deliver his people. And when the king keeps God's law, and the people keep the king's law, then that protection is assured. Then that protection is in place. He keeps God's law, they keep his law, and then there is divine protection. never fails. All the way through the scriptures. Wherever you have threats, dangers, and you have that formula, there is protection. It harks back to the terms of the Davidic covenant, although Lord's covenant with King David, and that's what this is referring to. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Whenever you see that expression, for the sake of somebody, it also implies that that servant of God is an intercessor, With God. In fact, he says so. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Egypt. This is what the Lord says. In a Latter-day context, you would say that an arrow might be a missile. You know, he's not going to shoot a missile into this city and bomb it. That's a possibility. When this scenario repeats itself in a Latter-day context, one arrow would not hurt very much today, but missiles would. Now, this city is also a term. He will not enter this city. He says it twice. That's also a term in Isaiah that characterizes the Lord's people. It's a metaphor. In Isaiah, there are two women that represent God's people. In other Hebrew prophets, it's mostly one. God's people are characterized as a woman who has a covenant relationship with her husband, the Lord. And the way she keeps the covenant defines her loyalty or her disloyalty to Him. And Isaiah turns that into the idea of two women. One who was loyal who turns adulterous and is cut off. One who was cut off anciently for adultery and who is now received back. So we have two entities of God's people that Isaiah talks about represented by the two women. And they can be identified as ethnic Israel which was cut off anciently and is received back in the end time according to Paul's allegory of the olive tree in Romans 11. And we have those who have been God's people the Gentiles as he calls them who are then cut off because they become adulterous as the others had done earlier and he does the same with two cities Isaiah there are two cities one representing those who are loyal to the Lord the city of God the city of Zion the people of God and one the wicked city the elite city that's cast into the dust and destroyed by the king of Assyria and there are also two covenants the covenant of life the covenant of death So Isaiah has this dichotomy all the way through his book When he's talking about this city, he's talking about the city of God or the people of God who will be protected at that time. Verse 36, Then the angel of the Lord... It's not clear sometimes who the angel of the Lord is, whether it's the Lord himself or an emissary of the Lord. Because very often in the Old Testament when a prophet is speaking with God, he's speaking with the angel of the Lord. Then the Lord said this, and then the Lord said that, that he'd been speaking to the angel of the Lord. So who is he speaking to? The Lord or some emissary? It's not clear at first. Then the angel of the Lord went out and slew 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. In other words, they all died by a plague of some kind or being smitten through some divine intervention. And when men arose in the morning, there lay all their dead bodies. Or another way of translating it is, when they got up in the morning, they were all dead. And of course, all these men were carrying the spoils of war from throughout the countries that they conquered and for the labor of burying the corpses, the Israelites, in this case the Judeans, were enriched with the spoils of war. So Sennifer, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew, and he returned to Nineveh where he dwelt. Because basically his power was broken at that time. His huge army was destroyed. And so it will be in the latter days, when this scenario repeats itself, that's the Armageddon. That's where this huge army of 200 million men in the book of Revelation will perish. And the 200 million men of the end time are the equivalent of this 185,000 in Isaiah's day. Because in those days that was a huge army. This 200 million would be today a huge army. And this is actually the historical type of Armageddon. Everything has a type. Everything that happens in the latter days has a type somewhere in the past. Because that's how Isaiah prophesied. That's how all the prophets prophesy Isaiah prophesies nothing really new is going to happen. The future is a rerun of past events, is a mirror of the past. It's a chiasm of the past sometimes, the chiasm of history. When that destruction happens, that breaks the back of the Assyrian power. And from then on, in the end-time scenario, we have the reconquest of the world. The Assyrians have spread out their armies all over the world In all the places that they have conquered. This is Hitler had his garrisons in every nation of the world that he conquered. In so doing, his forces got pretty thinly spread out, and he didn't have the military forces at his disposal for actual battles, because he had to maintain all those places that he conquered. Reconquering those places, once the main armies are wiped out, in Isaiah they're wiped out by divine intervention, as in this case, and also in the great military victory, in two distinct ways chapters 30 and 31, after those two great armies are destroyed, reconquering the world will be quite easy. And the Lord's servant does that. Cyrus is his type in the book of Isaiah. Cyrus is his type for reconquering the world on behalf of the Lord and releasing all the peoples that are left alive from bondage to the Assyrians. And as he was worshipping in the temple of Nisrach his god, his sons Adram Melech and Ezer slew him with a sword and fled to the land of Ararat. And his son Esar Haddon succeeded him as king. And that was the end of him. Now that's historical. In an end-time scenario, I don't know what that would refer to, because in an end-time scenario, the Lord's servant at the of David puts down the king of Assyria like David put down Goliath it's a David-Goliath kind of confrontation so I don't know where this fits in but I'm sure it does somewhere because everything in Isaiah has a second fulfillment there could be another great leader that's involved